Yes, we're in the book of Genesis. Again. All right. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Fernando. Uh, I have new glasses. Um, if, you, if you notice, there's an F for Fernando. Um, actually, they're called fatheads. That's what they're called. Uh, by the way, Mickey Rodriguez recommended them to me because he wears the same. So, yeah. We, we got big heads. What do you want? Um, not a personality. All right. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we want to offer our evening to you. And Lord, um, all kidding aside, Lord, we're here because we want to hear from you. Lord, we want to be free from the distractions of the world. And Lord, as we uh, just jump into the scripture, Lord, help us apply the lessons that are before us. Help us walk with you, Lord. And Lord, if we're struggling tonight, Lord, we wouldn't uh, be afraid to reach out to you, Lord. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you, Lord. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> well, Genesis chapter 38. Verse 1, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Ira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. And so she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again, bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Kezeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord, what, killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother your brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it, and it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to uh, the sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her, by the way, and said, Please, let me come in to you. For he didn't know that that was his daughter-in-law. And so she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? And so she said, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her, and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose, went away, and laid aside her veil, and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adullamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself. 
lest we be shamed, for I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that, Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent, excuse me, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. And so Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. And he never knew her again. Now it came to pass at that time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was given birth that the one put out his hand and the, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This, is, this one came out first. Then it happened as he um, drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through? This breach upon you, be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Zerah. Believe it or not, I read most of that blurred. For some reason, it's, uh, the light's really low here, so I could barely read it. But anyway, interesting story set before us. You know, there's a story of Frederick uh, the Great, king of Prussia. He visited a prison and he talked uh, with each of the inmates. And of course, there were endless stories about how they were imprisoned falsely. They were innocent. They were being exploited. And this was inmate after inmate after inmate. And eventually, as he made his way through the prison, there, there was one, one inmate that sat there quietly. And he says, hey, I, I suppose you're, you're innocent too, right? He says, no, I'm not. I deserve everything I deserve. I deserve punishment. Frederick turned to the warden and said, Quick, release him before he corrupts all the other innocent people in the prison. <laughs> Unfortunately, the story of Judas set before us, he is not this kind of individual. He doesn't admit his guilt. His life is marked by cover-ups. Should have been a Clinton. Chapter 38, in my estimation, is a real interesting chapter in the book of Genesis. The chapter is a parenthetical passage sandwiched in the chronological timeline of Jacob's son, Joseph. But what we'll discover is it's actually an important passage as it pertains to the Messianic line of Christ. Without the details of this passage, we would never know descriptive characteristics of Jesus' ancestry. And who his family was. I mean, they were a dysfunctional family. And we'll learn of Judah's personality, his family, his carnality, and irrespective of those things, God still demonstrates one of his greatest attributes in the, in the midst of this mess. Even our lives. And what's that attribute? His grace. When everything is dark and everything's a mess, God moves in and he clears the clutter and he says, I'm here. I'm here to meet you. Here's my grace. And he demonstrates his grace both in the life of Judah and Tamar. So I'm going to give you four hooks in which to hang your thoughts on. The first is the departure, verses 1 through 11. The second point is the deception. Verses 12 through 23. Third, we have the dilemma. Verses 24 through 26. And then we have the delivery. Verses 27 through 30. Let's look at the first point, the departure. Verses 1 through 11. Notice here in the first part of this verse. It says, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. Please note, it says, At that time. At that time. The phrase in the Hebrew is a very specific time. At that time. In order to understand what's going on in this verse, we need to look back and in context the previous story, the previous chapter. 
Jacob had sent Joseph on an expedition to see how his other sons were doing with the flocks. As Joseph was approaching his brothers there in Dothan, we are told in verse 18 that his brothers saw him from afar, and even before they came near, before they came by, they already had conspired to kill him. All except Reuben. They said, let's kill this dreamer and cast his remains into a pit. And we'll tell dad that some wild beast devoured him. But Reuben, wanting to spare his life, convinced them not to shed innocent blood, but cast him into a pit. Now we know Reuben's intentions were to buy time, hoping that somehow to spare the child's life. So they cast him into a pit. But as they were sitting there, we know the story, right? What do they see in the horizon? A band of Ishmaelites coming by. And as they're sitting there, as they approach, notice in chapter 37 here, verses 26 and 27, it says, So Judah, notice who the culprit is, said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listened. Oh, now he's your brother, right? What was their, their intent originally? To kill him. And they all agreed. It was Reuben, only one voice that stood to defend him and spare his life. It was Judah who thought of profiting from selling the brother off into slavery. He thought he might exploit the opportunity. You have to ask yourself, what kind of person would do such a thing? What drove them to make that kind of decision? Now, we're told in Genesis 37, verse 4, what drove them? They all hated Joseph because Jacob loved him more than all the other children. Jacob was partially to blame. He played favorites. He helped create the problem. Oh, be so careful, dads. Those of you with more than one child, when you begin to play favorites, they take note. They know what's going on. They're not naive. God help you if you play favorites. But it wasn't only just Judah that sold him out. They all agreed to sell him out, except Reuben. He wasn't there when they made the decision or the transaction. And I can only imagine the cries of Joseph. And I'm, I'm going through this passage, and I, I can't help but I got emotional. I'm going through this passage, and I, put, I envision Joseph there in the pit. And here come the Ishmaelites. And I, and I can imagine Joseph is there pleading with them, Don't do this. Don't sell me. Please, don't call this evil upon yourselves. And I can imagine he's crying. And then they pull him out. And I can imagine the shrieks as they strip his clothes and they shackle him. And I can just envision him being towed away. And he's still crying. And, as, and as he, I can only imagine also as he's sitting there and he's looking at his brothers through tear-stained eyes. Please don't do this. Imagine if you're there. If someone's pleading. What kind of person would allow that? Each of them bore their guilt with their money sacks. But Judah, again, he was a mastermind in selling them off into slavery. It was his idea. And what was that like as they prepared to go home to tell their father? I could see all the brothers trying to get on the same page regarding their stories. Hey, man, stick to your story. Uh, remember how we found the tunic. Uh, uh, Judah, you, you know what? It's your idea. Why don't you tell dad? So I can imagine they all got together and they're trying to stick to the game plan. What was that like? However, I don't think they expected to see the amount of grief their father was going to demonstrate. Notice in chapter 7, verses 33 through 35. It says, And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. Now, I've never lost a child. I can only imagine the hole in your heart. And he loved him. 
It says, he mourned many days. And what does the next verse say? And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my, to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. You have to get that picture in your mind. The heavy grief that Jacob was experiencing. Notice Jacob refused to be comforted. And this went on day after day after day. And I think this proved to be too much for Judah. Guilt had overtaken him as his father was refusing to be comforted. And he couldn't take it anymore. He doesn't leave. And I think he figures that, that if he doesn't leave, he'll crack under the pressure. So he departs. And there's an interesting dynamic that occurs when we sin. We do what Adam and Eve did when they sinned in the beginning. And it hasn't changed since the beginning. You guys know what happened. When they sinned, they took off from the presence of the Lord, and they hid, and they endeavored to cover themselves from their sin. Matter of fact, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Let's go there. Verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Notice, they had fallen. They'd sinned. Now they're trying to cover themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They covered themselves. And now they hid themselves. Notice verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? That's you and I. That's what happens when we sin. We attempt to cover ourselves because we don't like to expose the sin we've committed. And thus we run and we hide. That's our MO when we sin. And it's been the same since the beginning. We're no different. We're the same animal. Instead of, instead of departing from his home, Judah could have come clean and told the truth. As difficult as that may have been. However, he departs from a home where God's influence was apparently obvious. He decides he's going to pay a visit to his unbelieving friend, Hira, the Adolamite. He's going to visit someone who isn't a godly influence. And by departing from a home of a godly influence, we begin a journey towards compromise. Now, as believers, we may not come from a godly home. I certainly didn't come from a godly home. But hear the word of the Lord for you this evening. If you sinned or you're sinning, repent. Don't think about departing. This is your home. The church of God, the pillar and ground of truth, as 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us. The moment you depart the church, you've begun a journey towards a series of unintended consequences. Judah. What about him? Well, he is the fourth son of Jacob and Leah, Genesis 29.35 tells us, and his name means praised. Notice Judah's ungodly associations. Okay, he leaves the home, and now look, look who he's hanging out with here in the rest of verse uh, 1. And he visited a certain Adullamite, whose name was Ira. He visits Ira, an Adullamite. Now, Adullam was about eight miles from his home. Adullam was a place where in the future, as we know, David would hide in the caves there from Saul's pursuit. You could pick this up in 1 Samuel 22, 2 Samuel 23. Ira's name means a noble family. He appears nowhere else in Scripture but here. He is mentioned over three times in this chapter. First, he's an acquaintance. Next, he's an associate. And lastly, he's an accomplice. It was during his visit with Hira that Judah meets his wife. And who knows? Her father was probably within Hira's sphere of friendships. This relationship he has with Hira lasts for many, many years. He's there when Judah gets married. He's there when Judah begins having children. He's there when his sons get married. And he's there 
when Judah's wife dies. He's also there as he tries to redeem Judah's articles from Tamar. He's been in Judah's life again for a long time. Now, I wonder if Judah ever told him or confided in him about his family, but specifically Joseph. Maybe he realized if he told Hira the truth about Joseph and his involvement, that even by Hira's uh, standards, that was way below the belt. Now I can't say he's been a great friend, especially towards the end of um, this narrative. But there's something else that's troubling. He must have enjoyed Judah's friendship, right? If he's been his friend for so many years. Now why is this bothersome? Because folks who walk with God dispel the works of darkness, which tells me a lot about Judah and where he was at spiritually. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 states, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? You see, as believers, we all emit a fragrance. It's either we're going to draw men to Christ or away from Christ. And the old adage applies here. Show me your friends and I'll show you who you are. Show me your friends and I'll know who you are. Proverbs 12:26 says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Chick, you better pick your friends wisely. Words worth paying attention to. Who are the folks you fellowship with the most? Are they believers or non-believers? Do you look soulless with non-believers? Because after all, you know, their standards are a lot lower than yours, right? Sure, they'll agree with you. They'll drink with you. They'll indulge you. But think, think about what governs their life and why you should look for their fellowship. Think about that. Think about what governs their life. It's not going to be godly. They have no filter. What do they really have to offer? Listen, if you're not leading me to Christ, our fellow, or our fellowship isn't in Christ, I move on. My fellowship with you has to be in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, some folks say, we mean I can't visit a non-believer? No, that's not what I mean. But that shouldn't be my practice. I shouldn't be hanging out with non-believers on a regular basis. Okay? Bad company corrupts good morals. <coughs> but if I do visit, I'm going because I want to be a witness of Christ in their, in their life. And I really have a sincere desire for them to come to know Christ. Otherwise, again, there is no fellowship. Notice verses 2 through 5, Judah's ungodly marriage. It says, And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Kezib when she bore him. Notice Judah marries a Canaanite woman. Problema, folks. Major problema. Her father's name was Shua. His name means wealth. Hmm. Interesting, huh? Wealth. We literally know nothing about her. We have no name. We don't know how old she is. Just that she's a daughter of a Canaanite. But in one sense, that's enough to know Judah was already making bad decisions. First, he departs from home the place of influence and accountability, and then he associates himself with unbelieving friends. Then he winds up marrying an unbeliever. By the way, as the story unfolds for us, there is no mention of his family whatsoever. Nothing. Nada. Are you starting to see a trend here? So, okay, Fernando, what's wrong with marrying a non-believer? Everything. Everything. The second most important decision you'll ever make in your life outside of salvation is who you're going to marry. I tell folks in premarital counseling, 
You only have one shot at marriage. You better know who you're getting married to and it better be a believer or you will regret it. You will regret it. It's hard enough when you have two believers in marriage to deal with the issues and sort out the details. But get married to a non-believer, you're in a lot of trouble. Well, and I have folks tell me, Fernando, you don't understand. I mean, we have chemistry. We laugh together. We enjoy each other. Uh, I mean, we, we enjoy our fellowship with each other. Listen, everything is great before marriage, right? Matter of fact, you're at your best behavior before marriage. And women find Christian men attractive because they carry a sense of responsibility and virtue. And that to them is attractive. However, once you enter the realm of marriage, how do you think they're going to respond when the hard times come? Believe me, they're not going to be interested in honoring the Lord. They're going to be looking out for number one themselves. My question to you is, why would you even consider pursuing a relationship with a non-believer? Why would you? The only thing I can think of is gratification. My flesh. And my question to you is, why would you even consider pursuing a relationship with a non-believer? I'm amazed by that logic what we use as men as we pursue that type of relationship. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. Got that? Do not. Do not. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? For what agreement has a temple of God with idols? There is no agreement. Speaking about today, if you think about it, this ecumenical movement. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. And guess what? They shall be my people. This idea of being yoked is a picture of taking two beasts of burden to plow a field. You take two oxen and yoke them together with a wooden hardness. That's what is called a yoke. And you plow the field. You wouldn't take an elephant and an ox and yoke them together. Why? They're two different animals. One is stronger than the other. One is faster than the other. And one would fight the other. Get the picture? You're not pulling together. That's wisdom. God's wisdom for you to pick someone from the family of God. And guess what? Judah didn't. He picked a Canaanite woman. A woman influenced by her culture. A woman who had no fear of God. And that's a scary scenario. Because not only will it affect your relationship, but her and her family and all those people in that culture will ultimately impact your children as well. Notice Judah's sons here in verses 3 through 5. Ur means watcher. Onan means strong. And Shalah means cry out or petition. Or prayer. But let's look at this ungodly family. That's kind of a, a harsh statement, isn't it? This ungodly family. Like the Adams family. Uh, verses 6 through 10. It says, Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said, to Onan, go into your brother, brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he admitted on the ground, lest she should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Here in verse six, we have an arranged marriage. Judah selects a bride for Ur. And her name is Tamar. Again, no doubt a Canaanite woman. He didn't learn from his first mistake by marrying a non-believer. So he makes a similar decision for his son. Her name means palm tree. He must have spoke about her, her height, her slenderness, and her beauty. The scripture doesn't tell us why he chose her 
or what his criteria was in selecting a bride for his son. Maybe again, his wife, he was hoping his wife would, would be an influence by, by or, or I should say that uh, uh, Judah's wife being a Canaanite woman would say, hey, don't go select a Jew. What's wrong with a Canaanite woman? You married one. What's wrong with us? So who knows that maybe she was a, an influence. And I think if Jacob was allowed to pick Judah's wife, he certainly would have picked a Jew. But Judah didn't want any of this. Why? He was a self-willed man. He's a son that does everything his father tells him not to do. Notice in verse 7, Ur's death. Earth, Ur was so wicked that the Lord had to intervene and kill him. We're not told how wicked he was, nor the nature of his wickedness, nor does it tell us um, how the Lord killed him. Now, some of you are probably uncomfortable with this. You know, for some, this is a problem for some folks. How can a, a God of love, a loving God, kill somebody? Isn't that murder? I mean, we call that murder, right? I mean, he killed him. Here's the difference. God is a God of justice, and his judgments are perfect. If he killed Ur, it was for good reason. God does not just take someone's life unjustly. He has full knowledge. He has all the facts. The issue is Judah never restrained him. He knew his son's character, but he did not do anything about it. Again, maybe that's why he chose a wife for him. Someone that might help pacify his wicked, wicked nature. Now, in all of this, what was that like for Tamar? Again, we're not given much information regarding Tamar. But what was that like for Tamar? Having a spouse killed by the Lord. That's pretty heavy, knowing that my husband was killed by the Lord. Maybe that was God extending grace to her, sparing her. Notice verses 8 through 10, Onan's wickedness. This is where it gets dicey, doesn't it? Apparently the culture supported the custom that upon the death of the oldest son, it was the younger brother's duty to marry the widow in order to maintain the brother's name. And that child would bear the brother's name. He would, in effect, become the new heir. Eventually, this custom was codified in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 25. Now, Onan obeyed his father up to a certain point. He married Tamar. He somewhat consummated the marriage, except he admitted his sperm onto the floor. Now, I want to be clear here. And I know this is a very personal part of the story especially because we're talking about sexual relations within the marriage. But Onan's sin wasn't that he was practicing birth control. And it wasn't the sin of masturbation, as some folks might allude to. It was deeper than that. It was a heart issue. And God knows and he sees the intent of our hearts. That's the heart of the issue. Verse 9 tells us, Onan knew that the heir would not be his. He knew that. So let's start there. He knew if he produced a child with Tamar, it would be recognized as the heir on behalf of his brother. All the blessings, all the recognition, all the trappings that come with that position is acknowledged as his brother's. And that didn't sit well with him. Why? Why? His brother was a rat. And now he has to marry his wife. He's embittered. And I'm sure it all started when his father told him he would have to take Tamar as his wife and continue his legacy. And he was trapped. He knew the cultural responsibility he had, but he didn't want it. He probably wasn't looking for marriage or the responsibilities of it just yet. The timing was all wrong. He, he probably had plans as a young man and now he has to fulfill a family obligation. His hand was being forced. And I could just see him think, oh, man, this isn't fair. I had plans, big plans. I wanted to move on with my life. Now I've got to fulfill a family obligation. This is not fair. Murmur, murmur, murmur. And I could see him there at the altar on the wedding day. A day that's supposed to be, of course, a joyous occasion. And he's looking into her eyes thinking, I'm not supposed to be here. 
I have to go to bat for that low-life brother of mine. Why do you have to die? And I have to bear him in error. But imagine poor Tamar. She's in the middle of all this. You talk about awkward. I'm sure it wasn't easy for her. Now it's time for Onan to consummate the marriage. And as he does, he interrupts the process and he emits his sperm on the floor. That's the picture here, folks. And the rest of verse 9 says, lest he should give an heir to his brother. He knew the heir wouldn't be his. It was his refusal to give his brother an heir. That was the sin. That's his wicked heart. He says, no way. I'm not going to give my brother an heir. He refused to give his brother an heir. That's the real issue. And this act displeased the Lord, verse 10 tells us. Therefore, he killed him also. Interesting. God killed both Ur and Onan, both unbelievers. And what was that like for Judah now, losing two sons? What was that like for him? (laughs) Two sons that the Lord killed. It wasn't an accident. The Lord killed them. And notice also, this had nothing to do with Tamar. She did nothing wrong. It was Ur and Onan's wickedness that killed them. Not Tamar. You know, sometimes we approach this story and we we kind of almost can take that slant, can't we? That maybe it had something to do with Tamar. It had nothing to do with Tamar at all. She She was compliant in both marriages. And again, how would you like to be the one to know that both your spouses were killed by the Lord? Pretty heavy and pretty serious. You know, God is pretty serious about sin in the church. For example, in Acts 5, and you know the story, there was a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. It was early in the church's infancy, and the church was sharing all their possessions, right? People were selling their goods, and there was, a, there was this communal living going on, and people were sharing other, of their goods and their property. And Ananias and Sapphira sold some property, which they were willing to share part of their proceeds. The problem was they lied about how much they sold it for. And, and for you see, they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. They made themselves out to look better than what they really were. When in fact, they were liars. They were liars. And what did Peter tell them? Acts chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. God killed him. God killed him in the church. Also, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven tells us to examine ourselves as we approach the Lord's table. We're talking about communion. And Paul states, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this reason, many are sick, are weak, and sick among you, and many sleep. And we're not talking about memes. We're talking about death. That's a euphemism for death, is sleep. Many were dying. This is serious business. This is the church of God. So does the Lord kill non-believers? Of course he does. Does he also take home believers who are living in sin? You betcha he does. Now I wonder how many, in, how many in this room are weak or sick because you're not discerning the Lord's body. It's the only question you could answer. Serious business. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord, as First Peter 4 tells us. We're to examine ourselves because you know you. I may know you, but you know you. I only see the outside, but you know what goes on behind your heart. When's the last time you took stock over your life? What you're watching, what you allow to entertain yourself with? Are you saying no to sin or is compromise a way of life with you? Oh, be so careful. God is not mocked. We have a stern warning from Scripture that your life is in His hands. The Scripture tells us in Hebrews 10.31, 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I remember the first time I, I, I heard that scripture was at a men's retreat. And man, that sent shivers down my spine. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's the one person you need to be afraid of. Folks, we bear the name of Christ. And what do people see when they have an experience with you? What do they see? What's your conversation like? Notice verse 11 here. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Notice this is Judah's ungodly intent. Judah makes a commitment to Tamar. Go to your father's house until my son is of marrying age. However, Judah had no intention of giving his last son to Tamar, as we'll soon see. He was afraid that his son would end up like the two other boys, dead. But Tamar wasn't the issue. The death of his sons were not her fault. She was committed to the marriage and to the family. You know how I know that? It was demonstrated by her obedience. She went back to her father's house and put on the garments of widowhood. She was obedient. She, she demonstrates virtuous ideals. What was she telling her community around her by wearing the widow's garments? One, she's a widow. Her spouse has died. Two, she's off limits and is awaiting marriage. She's in a flight pattern. This commitment by Judah put her life on hold. And I personally believe Judah procrastinated, hoping for the unintended consequences of life to occur. He was hoping that maybe she might fall ill, have an accident, or possibly experience death. Whatever the case is, he didn't have any intention of keeping up his end of the bargain. Let's go to our second point, the deception, verses 12 through 23. Notice in verse 12, Judah loses his wife. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted and went up to the sheep shearers of Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. Judah has lost his wife. He is now like Tamar, a widow. We're not told how she died or if the Lord killed her as the other, as the other boys. It's assumed that she was young because Judah was somewhere in the neighborhood in his 40s and 50s. That's young, right? Okay, amen. Hello? 40s, 50s, it's young? You're a tough crowd. And I wonder what Judah was thinking about around this time. You know, I've done funerals. And death causes us to take stock regarding our life and our mortality. And I wonder if he thought about his own father when both his sons died. The grief he saw his dad go through, as well as the grief his wife went through. It was their kids. They, they came out of them. There's an immaterial connection we have with our children. For better or for worse, there's a bond that we have with them. And I can imagine as he reflected on the loss of his wife and children, that he now understood the pain his father went through. But more importantly, that he was the cause of that pain. I'm sure he's reflective and he's thinking about these things. You know, I've lost my boys. I've lost my wife. And the grief he's going through. And I, I can only imagine he understood what his father went through. The pain that happened. The hole that's there. Judah attempted to depart from the pain and anguish he caused. But he soon found out you can't depart what's in you. That follows you wherever you go. Again, what heaviness of heart he must have gone through. But he eventually was comforted over the loss of his wife. And so he goes up to the sheep shears of Timnah. He and his friend Hira. Now, sheep shearing in that culture uh, was noted as a time that's festive. There are celebrations that took place. So you can imagine, here comes Hira. He's coming over to Judah's house. He's hoping to cheer him up. And he tells him, hey, let's get out of here. 
Let's go see some of our friends. Let's go have a great time. And it was their version of the Super Bowl. Okay? And Judah says, yeah, you know, my wife is gone. I'm sure she wouldn't want me moping around the house all day if she was still here. My son's all grown up. Yeah, you know what? Let's go. I don't have anything tying me down. So off they go to the Super Bowl festivities. And notice verses 13 through 14. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him in marriage. Notice what she does. She disguised herself as a harlot. She puts on the veil and wraps herself up. And I'm sure she wrapped herself up to accentuate her figure. And the game is in full swing. Tamar is no fool. She knows Shelah is of marrying age and Judah hasn't given him in marriage. She saw what was going on. And I bet she knew the character of, of this man. He's either procrastinating or he has no real intention of giving him in marriage. The issue is, how do you, being a woman in that culture, redeem a solemn promise made to you, but you're not strong enough to enforce its redemption? You see, she's in a position of weakness. She can't enforce that promise. She came to the conclusion that he's not going to fulfill his promise, so she came up with a plan. And let me tell you, her plan was sheer genius. It really is when you really think about it. Now, I began to think about this, about keeping promises. And the Lord showed me, okay, Fernando, do you make promises you don't intend to keep? In other words, are you a person of your word? And I pose that question to you tonight because it convicted me. Do you keep your word? Do you keep it at home? Do you keep it at work? Or, or do you say, I promise only to keep folks off my back, to keep the pressure off, or to pacify them for the moment? Because that's when we usually promise somebody, right? Oh, yeah, I promise to do it. And you kind of, let's ease, let's ease the moment here. You know, someone once said regarding the nature of promises, he says, simply put, integrity is doing what you said you would do. It means you keep your promises. When you promise to be faithful to your mate, integrity says you'll stay with that person no matter what, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. If you promise the Lord that you would give him the glory, integrity means you keep on doing that whether you're reduced to nothing or exalted to the highest pinnacle on earth. If you promise a friend that you would return a call, integrity means you return it. If you promise your child that you would spend Saturday together, Integrity means you keep that appointment. Lastly, he says, a promise is a holy thing, whether made to a chairman of the board or to a child. I thought that was pretty heavy. A promise is a holy thing, whether made to a chairman of the board or to a child. Do you keep your word? Don't be a Judah. By unfulfilling your promises, it puts you in the danger, of, again, of unintended consequences. Keep your word. Verse 15, it says, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Please note, she's, she's veiled her face, she's wrapped her body, and she sat in an open place. These were all the telltale signs of a harlot in that day. If I said prostitute in your mind, what would you envision? Skirt, high heels, heavy makeup, walk in the streets, right? Walk in the streets. And usually they walk the streets alone. That's our culture, right? Well, Judah sees her, and these are all signs that she's a harlot. Judah looks at Tamar, and he assumes she's a harlot because, again, she's covered her face, characteristic of a prostitute. You know, what I find interesting is she didn't target his son. She didn't target Sheila. I would think, oh, you know, that would be the person I want to target. I mean, after all, that's who I'm supposed to marry. 
Maybe I can get impregnated by him, but she doesn't do that. Maybe she knew since his wife was no longer in the picture, it would be easier to seduce him, especially since the celebratory atmosphere would have added fuel to the fire. It appears she knows what she's doing. Notice verse 16. Then he turned to her, by the way, and said, Please let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And so she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your signet and your cord, your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away, laid aside her veil, and put on her garments of her widowhood. The trap's been sprung. Please note how immoral Judah is. We can't gloss that over. Sometimes we kind of skip those details, but he's not a moral man. He's a fornicator. He's paying for sex. He thinks he's having sex with a prostitute at that. And instead of getting better with time, he's getting worse. And if you don't walk with God, you'll be surprised how low you will go. I'm reminded of uh, uh, the Duggar family. You guys probably know that family, 19 and counting. Josh Duggar, one of the, uh, the folks on that show, you know how he molested five underage girls, four of them being his sisters. Um, later, he solicited a, a porn star online and eventually hooked up with her and he abused her. And Josh Duggar made the same mistake. And he's supposed to be a godly man. That's the picture everyone thought of him. He worked for the Family Research Center. Heavy. You know, which, which should tell us something. How we guard our hearts. What we're pursuing. Tamar is one smart cookie. Notice what she requires for a pledge. She requires his ring, his cord, or basically their bracelets, and his staff. And these items are going to prove... Um, Really important as the story unfolds. Now, I want you to take notice of the items that she requested. Notice, she requested these items, okay? She requested his signet, which was his ring. It represented his person. His cords of the bracelets, no doubt made of either silver or gold, represented his possessions. And his staff represented his vocation, his position in life. Take note of that. He was somewhat forfeiting his identity as a person, and she took it. She took his identity. That's what happens when we sin. We barter our life away. The life that God gave us. We sell ourselves out for the cheap. Kind of reminds me of old Uncle Esau. Doesn't it? He sold his birthright for what? Bowl of soup. What sin is worth giving your life for? What sin is worth giving your life for? So There's nothing worth it. Yet, we do. We sell ourselves short. Is it alcohol? Is it drugs? Is it women? Is it money? What is it? Because I tell you, it's one of those. You notice she lays out the conditions. And Judah gives Tamar the pledge she requested. And Judah goes into her and she conceives. She gets pregnant. Now, immediately after this event, she returns home puts on her garments of widowhood and waits. Here she is. She's pregnant. And she knows, inevitably, it's going to create a huge scandal in the community. How else do you explain a woman who's been wearing widow's garments and now she's pregnant? She knows that day is coming. You can only hide that bump for so long. Notice verse 20 and 23. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adolamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said, There is no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed 
for I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. Judah seeks to pay for her services by the hand of his partner in crime, Ira. Yet he cannot find her. And here's, here's Ira. He's carrying this goat around, and he's looked everywhere, asking everyone, where is this harlot that Judah's spoken about? He's looking everywhere. Can't find her. And, and this is kind of a side note. I thought that was kind of interesting to me. It's kind of funny. Uh, it's a funny thing about Judah's family in general is that they have this running theme through their family of goats and deception. Goats and deception. Okay? Well, for example, what did Jacob wear to disguise himself to deceive his father? Goat skins. Oh, good. You guys are good Bible readers. Goats and deception. When they sold Joseph off to Egypt and they took his tunic of many colors, what did they use to saturate the tunic with in order to deceive Jacob? Goat's blood. Again, goats and deception. In our story tonight, what was offered to Tamar for payment for sex? A goat. And he was deceived. Goats and deception. I thought that was kind of interesting. Stay away from the goats. <laughs> Stay away from the goats. Let's look at our third point. The dilemma. Verses 24 through 26. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father, saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine who these are, the signet and cord and staff. And so Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. And he never knew her again. Notice verse 24. News had reached Judah that Tamar had played the harlot. And not only did she play the harlot, but she was also pregnant with child. That's a double whammy. She played the harlot, and now she's pregnant. And upon hearing the news, he is so incensed that he demands that she be brought out and burned to death. Could you imagine that that is your request? Get that pregnant woman and burn her alive. That's pretty heavy. Especially because that's a strange request in that day. Normally the preferred method of execution was stoning. But he wants her burned alive. Pretty heavy. What a hypocrite. And talk about a double standard. He had no problem playing the harlot himself. The only difference between he and Tamar was she couldn't conceal a pregnancy. Think about his request for a moment. Again, this was a highly unusual request. Man, he must have been hot on the collar. And I could just hear him. And I'm sure he let everyone around him know that, hey, she's disgraced the death of my sons, my family. She's dishonored my family, the family line. And, and to think I was going to give my son to her. So you can imagine he's making all this noise. And obviously people are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And people in the community, they know. They know each other. You know, it's, it's hot news. This is the latest scandal. You know, forget Twitter. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. They know who Tamar is. They know the death of the sons. They know who Judah is. They know Hira. All these people know. So he, I, I'm sure he is just, just exploding. For again, Judah, he's an opportunist, isn't he? This was a perfect opportunity to finally rid himself of her and free his son from her commitment to her. She had been a thorn in his side for a very long time. Finally, he has an opportunity, and he's going to exploit it. Now, in verse 25, imagine the scene. Here he is. Judah's request that they bring Tamar out to be burned. No judge, no jury. The crowds have gathered, and they, they, they know their story. Judah looks like a man who's, who's sacrificed so much for his family. Could you imagine? People are going, man, we feel bad for this guy. He, he has lost so much. Lost the two boys. Lost his wife. And now his daughter-in-law comes out pregnant. She's played the harlot. Here Tamar is portrayed as an immoral woman. 
Judah appears justified before the people. But when she was brought out, notice she was willing to reveal to her father-in-law and to the people who she committed this sin with. And she reveals the identity of man by the articles she held on to, the ring, the cord, and staff, all belonging to Judah. And much like the words of Nathan the prophet to David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, Judah, you are the man. And I can see Hira in the background going, this is not good. You are in trouble. And I can see all the people going, this is not good. This is bad. And I can just see Judah just, I mean, overwhelmed, busted. Judah's sin had found him out. Not only his sin, but his hypocrisy, his insincerity. He is a fake, and everyone knows it. Everyone knows it, including you here tonight. All of you here. He's a fake. What's amazing about this story is Judah thought no one would find out about his indiscretion. But unbeknownst to him, his life would be read by millions. You and I. What would your story look like? <laughs> this should cause us to pause, right? And to reflect on our own decisions. You might think your sin is secret, but God has a way of making them come out to light. Mark 4.22 says, For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. There is no such thing as a secret sin. Verse 26, notice, Judah vindicated her. What else can he do? He acknowledged that she, in fact, was more righteous than he for not giving her his son. Talking about being humbled. He had a good dose of humble pie. It won't be the last time he's humbled, though. Wait till we get to chapter 44. He's humbled again. Let's go to our last point. The delivery, verses 27 through 30. We're almost done. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. Here we are, folks. Six months go by. Tamar gives birth to twins, Perez and Zira. Perez's name literally means breaking the breach or breakthrough. And Zira's name means rising. Tamar's plan was genius. Judah took the place of his son, and the Messianic line was preserved. Think about that. The Messianic line was preserved. Genesis 49.10 tells us that Judah is of the royal tribe from which the Messiah would come from. Therefore, anything related to Judah is vital when it comes to the story of Genesis. God's grace is all over this story. He demonstrated in the lives of Judah and Tamar. They are both connected by the lives of his two sons. Think about that. They're both connected by the lives of his two sons, which God judiciously took but in the end god replaced them he replaced both of them well how did he replace them he gave tamar twins he took two boys and he gave back two boys what's interesting if you go into the genealogy of jesus there are four women recorded for us as part of his ancestry and you know what they all had in common besides being women they were all gentiles all Gentiles, and all with interesting backgrounds. Read Matthew 1, verse 3, and you'll find Tamar and Paris's name in the record books. Such was the grace of God towards Tamar. What's your story? Are you going to live for Christ or after the flesh? I'm going to leave you a quote with Antonio Scalia. You know, you probably heard he recently uh, passed away, the Supreme Court judge. And I thought this is, for me, pretty powerful, coming from a man like him. He said, and I quote, God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools. And he has not disappointed. 
If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. End of quote. That was really good. Live for Christ. Don't live like Judah. Judah left his home. He departed. Ended up with ungodly relationships. Married a non-believer. And they just spiraled out of control from there. Why? Because he left his home. The place of accountability. This is the church of God. This is our home. This is where we need to be. We're here to serve one another, love one another. And we repent. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we want to again thank you for this evening. And Lord, just as we look at the life of Judah, Lord, and and the consequences, Lord, of living a life, Lord, far from you. At least trying to be far from you. Lord, you have a way of turning us around. And Lord, I pray for anybody here, Lord, who's struggling with sin or haven't repented, I pray that tonight would be a night they would turn. And Lord, we live unto you. You tell us that judgment does begin in your house. And Lord, that we would, again, pause and realize this isn't a game. These aren't just stories. They're not cute stories. They're for our benefit that we would learn to walk after you, Lord. And so, Lord, we we thank you for tonight for this story that's sandwiched between the life of Joseph and, Lord, again, that we would use this example to walk after you. We love you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you.